Episode 121 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with Gillian Baverstock, the elder daughter of the exceptionally popular English children's author Enid Blyton. More than 600 million copies of Enid Blyton's books have sold worldwide, including series such as Noddy, The Famous Five, The Secret Seven and Mallory Towers. After suffering from Alzheimer's disease since her mid-60s, Enid Blyton died in 1968, aged 71. Gillian died in 2007 at the age of 75. This interview with Gillian took place in 1996, in London, although we began by talking about the Buckinghamshire homes where her mother did her writing, Old Thatch in Bourne End, then more importantly, Green Hedges in Beaconsfield. Now, many famous authors, often less distinguished than your own mother, um, have had their homes made into museums, National Trust, that sort of thing. Would you like to have seen that happen for your mother? Yes, I would have loved to have seen it happen. But unfortunately, for various reasons, Green Hedges had to be sold to pay death duties. I and my husband would have liked to have lived there, but my husband had just moved up to Yorkshire as um, director of programmes of Yorkshire Television. So that wasn't a possibility. And so we had to allow it to be sold. What we didn't reckon on, having looked into the planning permission side, uh, that a building company had already got planning permission to demolish it and to build houses in the grounds. And this happened six months later, and I knew nothing about it until it had actually happened. But obviously, yes, I would very much have liked Green Hedges to have been used for something like this. And uh, very particularly because almost all her well-known books were written there. Because she didn't start writing her long books until I began to read. She wrote educational work and short stories in the first 15 years, say, of her writing life. And when I was five to six and I was beginning to read, she wrote uh, her first sort of really well-known long book, the Adventures of the Wishing Chair, and the next year she wrote Mr Galliano's Circus, and my great favourite, The Secret Island. And we had one more year before we moved house. So apart from the first maybe six books or so, everything else was written at Green Hedges, and it would have been the perfect place. Old Thatch was on the market a little while ago, and again, I did think it would be lovely to buy that. Uh, I mean, not to live there, but as, as a memorial and museum but it was a thatched cottage insurance would have been huge there would certainly have had to be a caretaker there and at that time the company which was a private family company and there was just no way that I think this would have been possible Can you explain how your mother's popularity as a writer compares now to previous times? Her fame was huge in her lifetime and it was particularly at the end of the 40s beginning of the 50s At the end of the 40s, she was known throughout the English-speaking world, including America, where she won the Best Boys Book of the Year medal in 1947 and went over to the United States, uh, to New York, to receive it. In the 50s, her work became known all over Europe and was translated. She was the, I think it was the third most translated or fourth most translated author in the early 50s in the world. And then, of course, in the 50s, we had Noddy and Toyland, the pantomime, we had Famous Five, P, 
play. We had two famous five films. Noddy was on television. There was merchandising, audio tapes. And you, there was everything. And by the time she became ill, she was hugely famous throughout the world with letters from every country. And then inevitably, that impetus kept going for quite some time through the 70s, picked up hugely with the famous five television in the later 70s and also the Noddy puppet show on television in the mid-70s and then dropped down again in the 80s with the growth of political correctness. It was not just political correctness, there was also a drop in the birth rate throughout Europe which affected all children's book writers in the 80s. Things were just beginning to pick up again in the late 80s and then we hit the recession in the 90s. But now, thanks to the Famous Five film and the adventure film and the films of this nature that are coming up in the last couple of years, suddenly popularity began to rise again. And now that we've been taken over, it's just it's incredible, really, what's happening worldwide. And it is worldwide now. How do you think she would have felt about her continuing popularity and especially all the celebrations going on this year for her centenary? I think she would have been very excited. She was not a person who wanted to go out and about and to receive accolades because she was quite a shy person, basically. But it would have given her huge pleasure to know how many, pe- how many children still read her books and loved her books worldwide. And now to know how many adults are coming out and saying what she meant to them as a child. I think this is one of the things that has amazed me in the 90s. In the 80s, anybody who dared to say that they liked Blyton was looked down upon as, oh dear, oh dear. But now all sorts of people and writers themselves are coming out and saying that she inspired them as a child, she got them reading, she got them loving books, she had a huge influence on their life, and all sorts of other people. And I'm learning fascinating things as I travel in taxis, where people tell me extraordinary stories from all over the world as to how they had read her as a child in English. And indeed, in India, I was sitting next to an 11-year-old Indian girl two years ago. She was Hindi-speaking, but she went to an English speaking school and was about to speak English non-stop the following year and I asked her about the English teaching there and about writing and about reading and when I asked her I said what reading scheme do you use in English being a teacher I was interested and she her eyes lit up and she said we read the famous five and I said to her that was my mother who wrote those and she looked at me totally disbelievingly with huge eyes, leapt down to the table, rushed to the other end where her grandparents were sitting. And I could see her mouth going non-stop in Hindi. And they, of course, were confirming this. And then she raced back to the other end of the table and I could see the same thing happening with her parents. And then she came back and she just sort of questioned me after that. And I, I found this absolutely lovely. There I was in Delhi and there I was suddenly met of all people, a little girl who adored her books. Can you explain how it feels for you personally, this continuing popularity in industry? How does it feel for you? It must be very special. Yes, it is a very special feeling, and I'm enormously proud of what she's done. And I've found working with her books uh, since I left teaching really very exciting because I've been rereading them all as an adult, 
and I've been perceiving and looking at them analytically and finding all sorts of things in them that I hadn't realised as a child reading them were there. I still find I laugh at the humour just as much. And there are still letters coming in from children. And I love, for example, writing the newsletter to children and getting their responses from it. It is, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing to realise that she has done more for children's reading throughout the world than anybody else has ever done or ever will do because we're leaving the great book age now inevitably. And also what interests me is in seeing how her work translates so very, very well because it's a very dramatically written work. It, it goes marvellously well into television, film, any type of drama and is certainly one of the script writers on the famous five said to me it just sort of wrote itself because it had this dialogue dramatic form to it and I see absolutely no reason whatsoever and I've been a little involved with the Noddy CD-ROM why it won't transpose equally well to that format and be a very valuable aid in education as well as entertainment over the next few years. Now, as we've explained, your mother's work is now a worldwide industry and has been for some time. What role do you play in that industry? Well, I have played a small role over the last few years since I left teaching, working with the old company that owned her copyrights. Uh, Since the uh, Trocadero have bought over Darrell Waters Limited, which does hold her copyrights. The company has expanded quite enormously. It has become absolutely worldwide with salesmen in every part of the world now, with enormous interest in film, in television. And it's multiplying to such an extent that I can no longer have the very close involvement that I used to have I admit that I miss miss that a very great deal. Because she was my mother, I did very, very much enjoy working with her characters and her stories, which I remember so very well as a child and a teenager. What's your favourite of all your mother's books? Well, I've always said when I'm asked this that The Secret Island was my great, great favourite throughout my childhood. And that was the one that was written when I was six and published when I was seven. And it was the very first of her adventure books. But in a funny way, it wasn't adventurous in the way we think of it. It's a story of children who run away from home because they're unhappy and go and live on a little deserted island in the middle of a lake. And it's really the tale of survival, how they survive over six months. And it's funny and it's amusing and it's exciting. And it tells you all sorts of things, like the fact that if you make a willow house, it grows because willow stakes put out roots. But I think if you ask me what my very favourite series were, and this one has to say, I have not read as a child. It was what we called the Barney Mysteries. The first one came out the same year that Noddy did, and I, I must have been 18, I think, at the time. So I read those as adults. <clears throat> I don't know what they were like as a child, but I've always loved them. She herself reckoned that they were the, the oldest series she wrote. She reckoned that they were for the very oldest children and actually were for older children than the adventure series, say, was. And they're very funny. They are certainly older, certainly considerably older than the five series. But I think that they're they're excellent books with a great deal of detail in them. And 
adult characters mixed up in a way that in other books perhaps there aren't. It's partly because they're mystery stories. Mystery stories have a great involvement with adult characters, which adventure stories don't, which is why, again, the five find-outers of dogs' mysteries have very strong, good adult characters in them. Do you think your mother hoped that you would write as well, and have you tried at all? My mother would have, I think, liked me to write because she thought it was a marvellous, marvellous career. She was very, very grateful that she'd been given a talent that enabled her to work from home, that enabled her to work in her own time, in a sense, though <laughs> by the time she got really well known, it was pretty well all the time. That's something that gave her very great pleasure, but, of course, the way she wrote meant that it wasn't the sort of sheer hard work that it is for most writers. And she also felt from her own experience, both as a child and as an adult, that to be able to be independent and to be able to look after your family if anything should happen to your husband, be it death or divorce, was something that all girls should consider, and this is why she pushed us into higher education and to a first-class education uh, through our childhood. From that point of view, yes, I think she thought it was a wonderful career, and if either of us could have done it, she would have liked us to have followed that. I, as a child, thought it was a marvellous thing to do, and I thought, great, I love writing in English. Yes, I'll be a writer when I grow up. Of course, it wasn't until I began to realise it's all very well you can write, but you've got to have the ideas there, and that was the difficulty. How do you remember your mother? I remember her as always huge fun to be with. Well, most of the time, huge fun to be with. I remember her as somebody who was always curious about things, very observant, in everything she ever did, I look back now, I think, yes, you know, she was indeed a born teacher and she must have been a fabulous teacher. The memory of her, I think, has been behind me in my own teaching career. She taught me to see beauty everywhere I went and that, I think, is one thing that I'm hugely grateful to her for. And it was beauty in the natural world, of course. Even artistically, when the art worked, she, she chose her artists with huge care. And when I was home and she was looking at the artwork and approving it, as she always did, you know, I remember beginning to look at artwork and artists' work with a different eye as I looked at it with her. And she taught me all my first lessons. And I have, oh, I have vivid, vivid memories of her in my first seven years. I spent a lot of time with her. As I say, she taught me her my first lessons. And I have memories of, her, of conversations with her, which is one of the reasons I did decide that uh, even if I could afford to, I wouldn't want to have somebody to look after my own children. I would want to look after them myself because I felt that the conversations and the talks I had had with her looking back were so valuable to me growing up that uh, I would like to think that with conversations with my own children, maybe I'd be able to have the same influence. But growing up sort of later on, I mean, obviously, yes, of course, she got cross if we made a noise when she was trying to work, inevitably. And I think any author or musician or artist would probably sympathise with her. But she was a great mimic. She was a wonderful storyteller, and she used to come back from London with meetings with publishers with, uh, you know, very funny stories that killed us round the dining room table. <laughs> My father used to collapse with laughter, my stepfather sometimes. She was certainly somebody I always found that I could talk to and would listen. Well, I, suppose I say always, but obviously I suppose in growing up there are times when you don't feel you can talk as freely to your mother as you did as a child or you will do later as a grown-up, quite inevitably. But when I was grown-up, yes, I did feel I could talk to her freely. And it was a very, 
very great tragedy for me and I think for my family when uh, she developed Alzheimer's and suddenly I lost this person whom I could talk to about so many different things. To go back to the earlier happier days though, she wrote about idyllic childhoods and she made many children's childhoods idyllic. Uh, was it idyllic childhood for you too? I look back on my first seven years as being extraordinarily happy, golden years. The next part of my childhood inevitably was involved with school and school friendships. Uh, I went to a day school to start off with and she chose very carefully and again a school which has influenced me all my life. I'm certain the teachers must have been either Ferber or Montessori trained there. I think this is what she being Ferber trained would have looked for. But I remember so vividly the way they taught and the way lessons were fun, which a lot of what they did I imitated in my own teaching because I thought it was so valid in teaching children. But of course, at this stage, Mother was very much busier. And although I saw her every day, although I ran into her to, from school every day, I no longer expected her to read to me at night. I mean, I was eight, nine, ten, you know, but I used to grab her, what she'd written that day, and run up and read it and then sort of talk to her about it. By the time I was ten, my tenth birthday present was staying up and having supper with her every night. And that was wonderful because then I had her completed to myself to talk about anything and everything. And as I grew older and I was still at home, university vacations, we had a sort of, well, this sort of companionship where if we didn't have anything particular to say to each other in a day, I would be perfectly happy and she would be perfectly happy. And we'd just look at each other and say, oh, shall we read? And we'd just happily read through a lunch off the trolley on our laps and sort of chat about perhaps what we were reading or, or whatever. It was a very easy relationship in a lot of ways. It's been well documented that your sister had a very different views about your mother. Why do you think that was? I think almost certainly from bits that she talked to me about in the 70s, it was because she didn't have this very stable, sunny period that I had in the 30s at Old Thatch with my mother. Imogen was four and a quarter years younger than I was, and we moved house when she was two and three quarters. So although she will have some memories of it, she has no memories of the relationship with my mother and my father that I had because within a year of moving, of course, the war broke out and my father joined up and organised the Home Guard to start with and then he was made uh, head of the southeast eastern civil defence of the country and was stationed in Aldershot and he was away and only home on leave. So sort of within a year or 18 months, everything changed. And they'd got this much bigger house and they got staff. And all of a sudden, and I remember my mother telling me when I was around eight, saying, I'm sorry, I haven't got quite as much time as I used to have. But everything's so much expe more expensive living now than it was when we lived at Old Thatcher. And I'm finding I'm having to work more. I've no idea whether my father joining the army meant that he earned less than he had as general editor in Nunes. I have no idea. But suddenly, certainly, they did seem to find the expenses quite great, and she did begin to work more. But it could equally have been because publishers were asking her to write more because she was now beginning to write these books which were beginning to become quite successful. Were you treated specially 
throughout your earlier life because you were Enid Blyton's daughter? No, I wasn't treated specially all my life. Uh, nobody really noticed it because her writing had been chiefly educational until I was five or six, apart from her little sonny's stories, mm. which I mean, many children knew, obviously. So when I went to school, the odd child knew that she wrote sunny stories. And then she began to write the odd book, and the odd child knew she'd written the odd book. But it wasn't really till I was 14 and I went to Benenden that I met people who actually knew that she'd written by this time quite a lot of books and was an author. This was actually quite difficult for my first term there. But after that, it was of no import. Nobody cared whose mother or father anybody was. I mean, you never actually thought about it. It was what you were that mattered, not who your parents were. Was her success a big burden to you, though, to follow on? No. She'd brought us up to believe that everybody has their own gifts and talents, and you must use those, but that each person must make their own way. You must have met some very distinguished people through your mother. Well, not particularly, because she was a shy person and she didn't, she didn't enjoy going to parties. She would go to publishers' parties you know, if she had to. I met publishers through her. I met Captain W.E. Johns, Richmond Crompton. I met E.V. Yeroux and I met Jack Brimble, the naturalist. I met one or two people in the theatre, Andre van Geisegem, but I didn't meet anybody in the sort of sense that, my God, you know, am I going to catch you up and take you to a different world? She wasn't in that world, you see. Do you think she had a happy life, your mum? I think her childhood wasn't happy. I think her teenagehood was probably very unhappy in her private moments, but perhaps forgotten about amongst her friends. I'm sure she was happy with my father, my real father, until things perhaps began to go wrong in the mid-30s. My early memories of them are that they were happy. But equally, I know that my mother, because of the terrible rows that she had heard as a child, tried to make certain that we were not affected by hearing anything untoward. She may well have been very lonely when my father was away for long periods of time, even though perhaps they hadn't been getting on beforehand. But she undoubtedly was very, very happy in her second marriage. And my stepfather adored her and he loved her and he helped her, supported her in absolutely every way he could, to the extent, I think, of being over-possessive, to be quite honest, because I would have loved her to have come and spent the odd day with me and seen my house and this sort of thing. And I would suggest perhaps to him that he brought her over and let her spend the day with me while he went perhaps to the races which he loved to do. But he would never do anything like that. It was almost as if he didn't, because he knew she was enormously fond of me, he didn't actually want to, to share her, her love with anybody else. I got that feeling when I married, though I know that at the time I got married, there was the first signs of the onset of her illness. So I have to say that maybe it wasn't possessiveness of her. It may have genuinely been great anxiety as to her health. Were she in full possession of her senses when she died, do you think she'd have been satisfied with her life? I have no reason to think she wouldn't have been. I mean, everything that she ever said to me 
although there were... It's so difficult because it's very hard to know exactly when the Alzheimer's really got a hold because it comes and goes to start with and so you, you, you and you don't quite know in the coming and going stage quite how with it people are in what you're thinking is their with it stage Nonetheless she'd achieved a tremendous amount what do you think had made her want to achieve all that? She didn't want to achieve it, it just happened nothing was planned mm. in her early life she made a readership for herself that enabled her to achieve what she did with her books because her early life with the education, educational side gave her an audience in this country of all the children who went through infant and primary schools. Well, most middle-class authors never achieved that, but she had all this audience sitting there when she began. And she, if you have her first books are written for all children, they're not middle-class in any way. It's only later, possibly because of a feed-through from children's letters, possibly because her publishers mentioned it to her, that her books began to have, you know, the odd help in the house, etc., etc., in them. But all the children who had loved her books or had her stories when they'd been read to them on Fridays at school, these people then began to buy her books for their own children. And in this sense, she created an audience without having any idea that she was doing it. What is the one message you'd like people to know about your mother if they ask you lots of things? What's the one thing you'd like children to know about this author they love so much? Well, adults always want to know the secret of her popularity still. And I think very strongly now, particularly through all the reading I've been doing recently, that the popularity is based on an amazing storytelling gift that she undoubtedly has and her ability to, to produce characters and groups and particularly groups who work together is always very interesting and the relationships between individual children in a group and the fact that they travel so very well I think it's due to the fact that she does not set everything in a historical time background and nor particularly a place background although weather and little notes about English countryside obviously yes they do appear but there's nothing there that prevents a child in their imagination entering into the story and using their own background and their own time scale and their own knowledge say of what's happening in their own country yeah. uh, if there's an enemy well, the enemy is whoever happens to be your enemy or your country's enemy at any one time. And the fact that the story is drama-packed and they can turn pages fast and involve themselves totally in the story, I think, is why it travels worldwide. As far as adults are concerned, it was something that stirred their imaginations when they were young and which I think brings back to them memories of a very great enjoyment when they were curled up reading as a child or lost in the top of a tree reading or blocking out noise in a London flat as they involved themselves in a completely different sort of environment to their own in the sense that London children in wartime sent out into the country sort of totally lost 
in a, a different environment could find a sort of form of security in reading about this type of environment, perhaps, in which there was a happy ending. Or children today who are not able to go out to play in countryside or even in parks can find in her work a freedom that they could only guess at, and in fact a freedom which actually frightens them if they're offered it. And perhaps it will enable them to accept this freedom because they've entered it in their imaginations when finally they do have to face it in reality. I mean, I don't know that I have a message for children except that I'm enormously glad that they, like myself, like my children, like my grandchildren, are all getting the pleasure out of her books that it gave her a great joy and a great pride to feel that she was able to give to children worldwide.